0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 2nd, 2023, the Could Nikki Haley Actually Win? edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast, back in Washington, D.C., back from my second home in Madison, Wisconsin. We had such a good time there, but um, gotta get back to reality. Still joined, however... By my dear ones, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily bazlon of the New York Times magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven, Connecticut. Howdy, Emily.
1: Hey David. Hey John.
0: This week on the Gabfest, the Republican presidential race is getting a little more interesting. Uh Pence is out, DeSantis is barely hanging on. Haley seems to be surging. Is there any chance that Trump doesn't win at all? Then the Supreme Court tackles the first of several huge social media cases this term, asking whether a public official has the right to block citizens from their social media account. Then we'll talk to David Leonhardt about his important new book, Ours Was the Shining Future, The Story of the American Dream. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter and an important announcement, important klaxon, announcement klaxon. Our conundrum show is coming up, as you know, every year um, over the holidays, we do one show which is just devoted to the incredible dilemmas, the questions that have perplexed and delighted you in the past year. Have you, for example, been wondering how to hide an elephant, wondering whether you would rather be a fish or a tree? Do you, do you want to know the answer to the question of whether you should put filthy clothes on your clean body or clean clothes on your filthy body? Do you think drinking milk is immoral? What would you do if a time traveling Jesus Christ or Genghis Khan showed up at your front door tomorrow? These are all questions that people grapple with in their day-to-day lives. We grapple with them on our conundrum show. Please give us your 2023 conundrums. Go to slate.com slash conundrum or conundrums, either one, plural or singular. Submit a conundrum. Tell us about it. And we will hopefully attempt to answer it with a with a, a celebrity co-conundrumist uh, in December. So slate.com slash conundrums.
2: Have we come up with the Genghis Khan? I mean, have we wrestled with that one?
0: No, I just thought about it. Do that one. It's just an idea that 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 came.
2: Because I I I have a lot of things to say about Genghis Khan. Christ, I've already thought about, but Genghis Khan, yes.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling. Wherever you sell with Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at shopifycom tech All lowercase. That's Shopify.com/slash-tech.
0: Mike Pence dropped out of the race for the Republican presidential nomination, a race he was deeply failing to light up. But the dynamics of the race are changing. Nikki Haley has surged from 6% to 16% in Iowa polls. She's now even with Ron DeSantis, although both of them are far behind Trump, who's at more than 40%. It is silly, of course, to say that something is a two-person race when there have not been any votes cast and when there actually only seems to be one person who could win it. But does Nikki Haley have a chance, John?
2: Well, first of all, um... And I'll probably um, talk too much about the Des Moines Register poll, but I think we should note that in the week that Mike Pence dropped his uh, presidential campaign, which was as sorrowful as it may have been for him, one thing I'm sure was giving him delight, which was that in that Des Moines Register poll, it also showed that Vivek Ramaswamy, has cratered in terms of people's unfavorable views about him. That poll showed that um, likely caucus goers know a great deal more about Ramaswamy and the more they get to know him, um, the more they view him unfavorably. Um, and given that Mike uh, Pence uh, kindled a white hot rage and a dislike for Ramaswamy, that should be noted. Is Does Haley have a shot? She's She's moving um in the right direction. DeSantis is moving the other way. A CNN poll has Haley at 22% in her home state. Uh, Senator Tim Scott is only at 6%. So it's not just that they're voting for people in the home state. And there is a push in in the, the Never Trump part of the party to have an alternative and Nikki Haley does well in the Des Moines Register poll and other places with just the kind of electorate that Republicans need to get back and that seems to be lost forever to Donald Trump, independents and suburbanites, also um, obviously college-educated women. So those are all things that are good and in her favor, um, but surging to 16% is not really tremendous when Donald Trump um, is at uh, 57%, but 16% for H- Nikki Haley is a far, far distance away from Donald Trump, who is in the 40s. And inside the poll, you see that the people who are determined to vote are, tend to be way more Trump voters, and people who aren't going to change their mind tend to be Trump voters. That's true more broadly, not just in Iowa. The reason we care about the Iowa poll is that Ann Seltzer, who's, who does it, is considered one of the best pollsters out there. So, Emily, what is
0: Haley doing, if anything, that's buzzing her up? She seems like an actual adult.
1: Yeah, she seems like an actual adult. She's been talking about um, Israeli-Palestinian issues with a lot of know-how. I mean, she's super pro-Israel in a kind of reflexive way. Uh, But that, I think, helps her show that, you know, she was the representative of the United Nations. She has that on her resume. and. I mean maybe it's just that DeSantis is kind of flailing and the never trumper or the skeptical of Trump vote in the Republican party was looking for somewhere to go.
0: Is DeSantis cooked? John?
2: Yeah. I think so. I think you have to for the following reasons. One, Ooh, he I ha- love it when John says for the I know. Reasons. That was I a love great it. intro. I'm so excited. Go, go ahead. Oop. Well, he has he has an amazing <laughs> resume you would on paper for um, the Republican race. If you were going to be an alternative to Donald Trump, he's not a squish. He has military service. He served in the House. He's he's transformed and changed uh, politics in Florida. He succeeded in Florida on a number of cultural issues that matter to the Republican base. And we should always remember that the what we're talking about here is the base of the base. Um, only sixteen percent in the last uh, competitive Republican primary season. Of the only 16 percent of Republicans voted in the last competitive primary season, so it's a small part of the Republican Party, but it's the part that where DeSantis should do well. He had all of that going for him, and he has been unable to rise, and in fact, he has fallen. Um, and so, uh, if you can't have done it by now, um, it, it seems past him. Uh, in terms of being able to be that alternative uh, to Donald Trump. That isn't to say that he doesn't still have some favorable numbers he can cling to. 67% of the people in that Des Moines Register poll said they were considering DeSantis as for their vote. That was higher than Haley in terms of people who say they're considering Haley or DeSantis. And you want at this stage in the caucus in Iowa, people to be considering you, even if they don't list you as their first choice right away, because they can certainly change their mind and it can be fluid in Iowa. But I just think that he has been given such an opportunity, and he started with such a good good hand to play, and his inability to do well, given that hand, suggests real limitations to his ability to grow, and there's a desperation among the people who want an alternative for Trump, and that desperation is not going to head towards uh, Ron DeSantis.
0: Emily, do you think there's any chance that some of the other non-Trump, anti-Trump candidates notably Chris Christie and Doug Berg. I guess Doug Burgum isn't really an anti-Trump candidate, but the ones who are polling at 4 3%, Asa Hutchinson, if they gave up, that, that Haley would pick up all of those votes and that would, again, be helpful to her? Or do you think it, it's not as simple as that?
1: I mean, I guess. Sure, but there's so little vote. It's like pennies and nickels, not even nickels of support. So I just don't think it would really get her very far. Isn't that right?
2: It's hay pennies when you talk about um, like... Asa Hutchinson's vote, because it's it's you cannot you cannot see it. um, uh, It's so small. So yeah, that's I mean, that's the problem is that in these um, is that if you add up all the non Trump votes, um, you don't depending on the poll you're looking at, you don't have an electorate that's bigger than the votes Trump is getting. In Iowa, you might it, it, that's not precisely true it 's definitely true in national polls in the states it's roughly true that they're about equal all the non trump votes versus trump. but what you want to see is is some dynamism in a race that has otherwise been frozen solid um, now, Nikki Haley may be having a little bit of a moment here, um, but she also has not um faced the kind of scrutiny um, that uh, that she would if she were the only uh, alternative to Donald Trump. Now, having said that, um, he might very well, and I think if you were a never Trumper who was looking to find a place to put your vote, there are there are mistakes that Donald Trump can make in attacking um, a, a female challenger that are um, that are a bigger problem for him than attacking Chris Christie. Um, both in terms of the electorate within the primary, I think, but also more broadly, it underlines his biggest challenge among many in a general election which is that um all those suburban women voters all those uh, um republican women voters who abandoned him in the last election are not likely to come back and i think they'd probably be even less likely if he went after nikki haley in the way that he goes after women of any stature in his entire career doesn't he
0: not need to deal with anybody doesn't he just not wouldn't his best strategy be don't talk about anybody else just do your his weird appearances in, in uh, Sioux Falls uh, or Sioux City, wherever he was, and not actually engage with any of the opponents. The more he engages with them, the more chance that they get into a real race with him.
2: It's a good, really good point, David. I, I would say two things. One, I think that we've seen that Donald Trump's sense of himself um, is, uh, is impervious to the kind of restraint you are ascribing to him or suggesting he might have, which is to not respond to an attack. Like he's just, that's just, that's very hard for him to do. So I think that would be hard. Secondly, a lot of times he has to create these fights because he's got four indictments and a couple of civil cases going on. And, and this is the way in which those, um, if we think more broadly about those cases against him, he has to create alternative madness to sort of take the attention away from the bad things that are happening which are maybe not bad with respect to the Republican primary, but they are bad reputationally. Like, I mean, there's an entire civil case in New York that has determined that he's a total phony when it comes to all of his um, inflated claims about his worth. Like, that goes right to the heart of his ego, leaving aside whether he's going to have to pay $250 million and be barred from doing business in New York anymore. So I think that for him, some of these fights are useful, and one with Haley might be useful, and just distracting um, from his other things going on in his life.
1: Can we just marvel at the fact that Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, I think actual Donald Trump, are all supposed to testify in this fraud trial? Ivanka Trump is trying to weasel out of this by blocking the subpoena, but she may also have to testify. It's just kind of incredible. The entire family is having to testify in a trial about how their whole business was a complete fraud in New York. It's just an amazing spectacle. And it isn't getting that much play, um, you know, in part because the war in Gaza is taking so many headlines, but in part because this is sort of baked into the Donald Trump story already. If it was anyone else, it would be defining.
0: Let's close by just talking briefly about Dean Phillips, Dean Phillips, who is the Mike Johnson of the Democratic Party. Dean Phillips has entered the Democratic presidential race, and he's making life a little bit messy for Biden by being a declared candidate in New Hampshire. what is the purpose of Dean Phillips, who is a Minnesota House Rep? He basically supports Biden. What is the purpose of this run? Is he making Biden work a little harder? Is this real trouble for Biden? Is it just a little, you know, breeze in the trees for Biden?
2: I don't know. I mean, I'm. I find it difficult to, to figure it out. Particularly, I mean, I mean, I think some of the things he's saying are quite interesting, and they they um, connect with a view of the challenges that face uh, America that um, David Leonhardt will, we'll talk about when we have him on. Um, so, um, I think he's beneficial to the mix, um, of just public conversation. Um, I think if you see it from a democratic perspective, I mean, his theory of the case is either he can beat Donald Trump. i sure you have to claim that if you're running, but the other is that if he doesn't win (laughs) against, um, Biden, that he will give it, it'll be kind of a shape up cruise for Biden and kind of sharpen him. um, I don't know, attacking Biden on the border and immigration is, I don't know if that's a great shape up cruise. I think it just highlights a huge vulnerability and weakness for Biden. Um, And so uh, when when your disapproval rating is at 54 on average, I think the latest 538 uh, polling average, I don't think you need somebody highlighting your um, uh, problems to make you a better candidate. Um, So I I don't, the the theory doesn't really pan out for me. And also, by the way, if you look at the real challengers to incumbent presidents, whether it was Reagan to Ford or Carter or uh, Kennedy to Carter, in both cases, a sufficiently good challenger, which is not what Phillips is, undermined and led to the defeat of those candidates. So just from a historical uh, perspective, uh, it's not uh, not proved.
0: Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Maybe Emily's shaking her head. No, <laughs> but some people Come do. On. Some people do. And you should stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to talk about the ban on cell phones in one particular Florida school district and, and the sort of crackdown on cell phones broadly in Florida for students. But this segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. Uh, we've been able to keep the show going for so long because of you. If you're not a Slate Plus member, we love you too. And we'd love you even more if you signed up and you'll get a bonus segment on the GabFest every week, as well as on other Slate podcasts. You'll get discounts to live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, a lot more. So if you are a member, thank you. If you are not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today at slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, the Supreme Court is taking a whole bunch of social media platform cases connected to the First Amendment this spring. We will get to the later courses in due time. Maybe we can nod at them today. But let's start with the pair of cases they heard this week about whether public officials can block citizens from following their social media accounts. Can you talk about the basic facts of these two cases, where they come from, and and also how they connect to the case that probably people actually remember, which is the one involving Trump's Twitter account, which which they ultimately did not hear?
1: Yeah. I mean, the Trump case is the sort of obvious one, kind of, I think, easy to think about the First Amendment issues at stake. Trump, of course, had a giant Twitter presence. He blocked certain people who were commenting in ways he didn't like. Um, the people who challenged him, one, in front of the federal appeals court, but then by the time the Supreme Court was going to hear the case, Trump was out of office and the Supreme Court mooted the decision. So this remains a kind of open area of law. And the cases that the Supreme Court heard this week are about local public officials. So the first case involved people who are serving on the school board in Poe Unified School District in California, and then a city manager in Port Huron, Michigan. And basically they had Facebook pages and people were criticizing them or criticizing their policy ideas, kind of showing up, making like repetitive, really long comments. Um, and so these public officials blocked the critics who they didn't like, Um, you know, they were kind of cleaning up the comment space on their pages from their point of view. And then we have a circuit split. We have the Ninth Circuit, the Court of Appeals um, that uh, oversees California and other states in the West saying that these public officials had violated the First Amendment rights of their critics by deleting these posts. And then we have another decision coming out the opposite way from the Fourth Circuit where those judges say that this is not state action, that this Facebook page that um the city manager had was not a government organ, and so he was allowed to run it as any private citizen would by booting people who are saying things he don't li- he didn't like, and I think. There's a sort of obvious way to think about this case, which is like if you're deleting speech from the page of something that seems linked to a city official or any public official, that seems like, yeah, that's not a great free speech move to make. And you're kind of shielding yourself from criticism, The other way of thinking about this is like, wait a second, is this really a public forum, your Facebook page? Um, Or do you have speech rights where you get to make editorial judgments about what is going to appear in that space? And if we tell public officials that they can't delete anything, then they're going to be subject to criticism, harassment, harassment um other kinds of speech, you know, that they don't like that the rest of us would not be subject to. And so those are the interests that are being balanced here. And I, I wonder what you guys made of these cases.
0: So I I feel like there you you framed this really well. There is this immediate threshold question, which is is a social media feed actually official action? And it seems to me that the presumption Should be that it's not if it was set up privately, the presumption should be it is not. But that presumption could be overcome if people use it exclusively or in very significant ways to set policy or to clearly carry out government action, as I think you can argue that Trump did in his Twitter feed and also that one of these uh, that the school board candidates did in their in their feed. Um, but so then, once it's overcome, once you say this is official, do people have an unlimited right to make the asses of themselves on your social media feed just because it's a public official's? And that seems to me to be pretty easy. Like, no, you don't. And and I love Noah Feldman, legal scholar Noah Feldman's analogy to the White House briefing room. That there is a the the White House briefing room is open. The White House is owned by the public, uh, but the White House does get to set the rules about who can say what. It's not that the reporters get to decide, they get to say whatever they want, whenever they want in the White House briefing room. No, there, there is a set of rules about how people behave and the White House should be able to set it in the same way that I feel like if you have a Facebook page that you're using for official business, you get some right to determine how people use it. I wish there was a functionality that allowed people to listen without commenting. Like that every you can't that you wouldn't be allowed to bar anyone from being as squatting on the page and listening to what you say, but that you are allowed to to control people, whether people are allowed to comment and their comments appear on your page.
1: Right. And the reason you're wishing that is you're thinking like, okay, well, if you're doing some public business, you're posting about covid restrictions, um, as one of these public officials was doing, people should be able to see that information and read it, but not necessarily respond in a junky way on your page.
0: A case that would persuade me was a case where you had a public official who was systematically going in to their comments and barring everyone that was saying anything critical, and so that there's a there's a feed that exists that is just highlighting supportive comments, and and they're they're just massively barring lots of people, uh, anyone who says anything anything critical. But a single kind of like they blocked one person who seems to be behaving in an annoying way that does not seem to me to meet the bar of of this is this is uh favoring certain kinds of speech and disfavoring others it's just like there's an annoying person it's fine to bar an annoying person because they're heckling and just creating disturbance that's not the same as saying no democrats are allowed to comment in this feed and that that would be you know that would be a viewpoint discrimination that would be troublesome but i don't think we have an example of that even trump didn't do that trump barred a few people who were annoying but it's not like every person that said anything critical of trump couldn't look at his twitter feed.
2: i wonder if there are another alternative is to is to embrace the functionality that's true on some sites which is when you mute not mute somebody but when you hide a reply that it is it shows that it's hidden so that it that thinking about this in terms of a public space this would be the equivalent of sort of ushering somebody out and the rest of the the rest of the audience can tell whether the person who was ushered out was being a crank uh or whether they were raising a good point that then someone else could raise, so that you you have some discretion to keep it from turning into a total madhouse, um, but you have sufficient transparency also that if um, it's a it's a reasonable point of view, it can it can be surfaced by a lot of people. Um, also, does it matter, Emily, if people have another venue in which they can express their um, complaints or criticisms about the various things that? public officials might say on their social media, that would seem to matter too.
1: I mean, there's always other venues. Like you can show up outside their office with a sign. I think the argument that, well,
2: I was going to say, Sorry. I mean, if so, what I've always felt is that if people want to, and I've stolen this from Merlin, Mann, if people want to be, uh, react to something I've said, like I don't have to let them come and poop in my living room. Like in my, my comments are connected to what I said. I don't have an obligation to let them be awful, Connected to my comment, if they want to go on their feed, repeat my comment and then say something awful—that's in their living room. Good for them. Like they can go do it. I'm obviously not a public official, but the obligation because they have a place where they can go make their point and no one's stopping them. You know, I have no obligation to let them uh, to to let them speak. Obviously, with a public official, you get into a massive imbalance here, and that that if a person wants to pipe up on their page, nobody's going to listen to them. Maybe.
1: Right. I mean, that's why the sort of first question David was asking about whether this is a designated public forum in the first place is important. I mean, one thing I think we're all wrestling with is like these very fact specific determinations. Like first you have to decide, OK, it's a private Facebook page, not an official government account, but it has a lot of government business on it. So. You know, one of the federal courts dealing with this said, okay, well, it looks, it appears to be a place where the public business is being done. And that should be the test for whether there are First Amendment rights here. That's like a very fact specific inquiry the courts would have to go into and it could turn on some pretty subjective factors. And then the sort of second thing of like, okay, well, are you just blocking one crank or are you blocking everyone with any good faith criticism? That's another very fact-specific, right? I don't think we've come up with any like real rules here. And that, I think the the justices were also trying to figure this out.
0: Emily, do you want to just preview the other cases that are coming just so So GapFest listeners can whet their appetite knowing that you're going to be digging into this later in the term.
1: There's two cases, two sets of cases coming up. Um, One of them is about whether the federal government violated the First Amendment by pressuring social media companies to take down false or misleading content about the 2020 election and COVID-19. This has become known as the idea of jawboning. Like if the federal government is saying to social media companies, there's all this COVID misinformation, do something about it, that that could be a kind of pressure campaign that would um, violate free speech rights. And then the second is a pair of cases, they're challenges to laws in Florida and Texas. And what Florida and Texas have tried to do is to say to the social media companies that they may not take down content that's based on the user's viewpoints. So this is the kind of, Conservative view that social media platforms are taking down a lot of conservative content and it needs to be protected from that kind of viewpoint discrimination. The tricky issue here is that social media companies are private entities. They have their own free speech rights. Um, And so one of the big issues will be, are they making editorial judgments when they remove, block, diminish the reach of posts? This is kind of ironic because the companies have always been trying to say they are not making editorial judgments so that they can hang on to their immunity from lawsuits um, in a different context. But um, these laws are just a really interesting way of... they're, They're a really interesting lens into free speech rights and how uh, the courts are thinking about them right now and what to do about them, especially in this space of social media, which has private ownership, but also really are like these huge public platforms, obviously.
0: GapFest listeners, we forgot to promote the other week a new GapFest Reads. I talked to Christy Coulter about her wonderful memoir of working at Amazon exit interview. Such a fun conversation. I learned so much about Amazon from her book and from talking to her and Christie's, just a lot of fun so uh, check out our gatfest reads in your feed from probably two weeks ago now on exit interview really really great book david leonhardt writes the morning the new york times's flagship newsletter he's also the author of an essential new book ours was the shining future the story of the american dream david welcome back to the Gabfest, we've had you on so many times before. To to be wise on our regular topics, now we're so happy to have you back to talk about your amazing new book.
3: Thank you for having me back on the Gabfest to talk about my book. I always love being on the Gabfest.
0: So you talk about the great American stagnation. That's an idea that that's kind of at the heart of your book. And there's a statistic that. Everyone who hears it is kind of blown away by. It. Can you can you tell us about the statistic? The statistic.
3: The, the statistic has a fun little backstory because a, a group of economists had been doing all this work on Americans' earnings over the years, and they produced this wonderful research. But it was a little bit complicated for ordinary people to follow. And I can't do any of this research. This is Raj Chetty's team um, at Harvard and Brown called Opportunity Insights. But I said to them, boy, I wonder if you can do this in in a way that people could understand more easily. And I wonder if you could use census records and IRS records to produce a statistic that tells us what percentage of Americans grow up to earn more money than their parents did at the same age and how that's changed over time. And at first they said, wow, that would be really hard linking all these records, which I'm sure it was very hard, but these are phenomenal economists and they figured out how to do it. And what they found was that uh, an American child born in 1940, so this is someone in the early 80s now, had a 92% chance to grow up and out earn their parents, which is, it's like a virtual guarantee, right? Even if you got laid off or had an illness, um, that includes a lot of people who were not um, male wasps, right? Who were obviously a a privileged group of society, very much so during this era. 92% 92% grew up to in their parents. And now you fast forward to millennials, and that percentage um, uh, has declined to 50%. So basically, uh, by this basic definition of the American dream, it's gone from a virtual guarantee to a coin flip.
1: A lot of your book or interesting parts of your book are about immigrants. So you tell a story of your own family immigrating to the United States. And then you talk a lot about um, the research and data we have on how high immigration or substantial immigration affects the earnings of Native-born Americans and different class groups. So I wanted to understand your skepticism about the conclusion that we can have lots of immigration and that is kind of good for everyone, which was something, I I don't know this literature well myself, but I felt like that was a sort of consensus position on the left and the center, and you're kind of questioning it. So I wanted to hear about that, and then I'm going to cheat and add a second question, which is, Do immigrants have the kind of rising tide of generations that Americans used to have more widely? Like, are they reflected in that 92% in a way that's different from people who are born in this country?
3: Yes. So um, I'll, I'll answer the second question first, Emily. The, uh, immigrants continue to do phenomenally well in this country. The, the, there's a book by two economists called Streets of Gold. Um, it's actually based on some of the same tax records that I just mentioned a minute ago. And um, immigrants really continue to do extremely well. The trajectory of Asian American and Latino immigrants um, in recent decades looks remarkably similar to the trajectory of Eastern and Southern European immigrants and i guess uh, irish immigrants as well from the late 19th and early 20th century and that is a really nice exception to the great american stagnation and i think it's something we should feel proud of as a country i think what has happened is that a lot of people on both the left and the right um not the trump right but the kind of wall street right have taken that and basically argued that immigration has no trade-offs whatsoever and I think that's wrong. I do not think in any way immigration is the main reason wages have stagnated for most Americans. I think the decline of labor unions is is many times more important. I think global trade is more important. I think educational stagnation is more important. But um, supporters of more immigration don't just say that. They say it has no costs. And... If you look at, and my book has this chart, if you look at the era when American inequality was falling the most, it was also the era of the lowest immigration in this country. And not only that, but the two eras of rapidly rising immigration, the early 20th century and the last 50 years, have also been eras of rapidly rising inequality. So immigration, when immigration has gone up over the last 100 plus years, so is inequality. When immigration has gone down, so is inequality. That's correlation, not causation. But what I have emerged from this research and concluded is I do think there is a modest, not enormous, modest negative effect on the wages of blue collar workers. There's a National Academy report that reviewed every study and most of the numbers in the big table are negative. And even more important than the economics, I think immigration has a big political effect that is nearly impossible to overcome. When immigration is really high, societies have a harder time putting in place progressive economic policies. And I know that people, defenders of immigration will sometimes say, well, that's just because of racism. And clearly you just have to listen to Donald Trump to know that racism plays a role, but it's not just racism. Every country in the world feels really uncomfortable with very high levels of immigration. Japan and South Korea have had incredibly restrictive policies in recent decades. When there've been huge surges of immigration in Europe, almost no matter what country people are coming from, it leads to a right-wing backlash. And I think that the left has really not wanted to engage with the unavoidable trade-offs between high levels of immigration and the difficulties in creating the progressive economy with declining inequality that many people want. And I think some of those trade-offs are real.
2: David, for the wise listener who has heard that 92% um, figure um, and and how you derived it, you mentioned, what's the next sentence for them? So for example, you said, you named global trade, the fall of unions, and um, the diminution of educational opportunity those sound like three of the roads that have changed the, oper- the, the, the route to the American dream. What else would you put in that? What other roads are shut down or have gotten more occluded? And also, explain what you mean by global trade.
3: Roads, actually, it's a nice metaphor because one of the answers is roads. Um, uh, so by global trade, I think, I, I mean, I particularly mean um, Uh, the huge increase of trade with China. Um, One of the things I try to do in the book is go back and look at the promises that people have made over the last 50 years about what these big shifts in our economy, mostly shifts toward a more laissez-faire economy, basically toward a more uh, to the political right, right? I look at the promises that Ronald Reagan and the people designed his economic policy made about what their economy would produce. And then I looked at the bipartisan promises about what trade, expanded trade with much of the world, um, mostly China, or predominantly China, would do. And those promises just haven't come to fruition. I mean, Ronald Reagan and the people who were designing an economy with less regulation and fewer labor unions and much lower tax rates on rich people and an antitrust policy that allowed companies to get much, much larger, they said this would lead to prosperity for everyone. And it hasn't. And if you go back and look at Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and the first George Bush, they promised that trade with China would make America more prosperous and China freer. And um, when you go back and look at it, that's just not what's happened. Trade with China is complicated. Yes, it's reduced costs for some consumers, for many consumers, but it's devastated communities. There's a whole line of research on this called the China Shock Research by David Autor at MIT and others. And so I do think global trade is an important, Uh, factor here. And I think it's worth revisiting the the old neoliberal consensus on how great free trade is. I I would just point out that China is a lot less free about the trade they allow than we have been during this, during this time. John, you asked about what other factors I'll just briefly say. We as a country, I don't think we invest as much in the future as we used to. So that's schools, scientific research is a share of our economy. And the specific story I tell, which I just find stunning is, if you wake up this morning in New York or LA or any other city on the coast, and you want to cross the country, takes more time than it did 50 years ago, you'll find more traffic on the roads, getting to the airport, you'll spend much longer going through the airport process, and maybe most amazingly, the scheduled flight time between the coasts is longer than it was 50 years ago. And I think that's just a really damning sign of our of our lack of progress in a very basic way.
0: We'll get back to some of the policy questions. But one of the things that makes this a special book is that it's also a book about stories of people who changed America, that the, the actions of individuals uh, changed the trajectory we were on, built roads, built those roads that you're talking about. And I want you to talk a little bit about A. Philip Randolph, who's one of the heroes of the book, because he's he's an amazing American, and I don't think enough people know who he is.
3: Thank you. You might have just picked my favorite character, David. I mean, I, I, um, uh, I, I just find his story to be incredible. And so one of the things that I tried to do in the book was some of the characters in the book are really almost unknown to people like uh, Grace Hopper um, or Anne Gorsuch, although people know Anne Gorsuch's son, Neil Gorsuch. But then there are a bunch of characters who people have heard of and they know, but I don't think they fully know how important they are. Robert Bork is one of those. But I think A. Philip Randolph may be the biggest one. So he's, he's born in Jacksonville, Florida. His mom operates a tiny little sewing business out of their house. His dad is, a, is a, an AME preacher, but he doesn't have one of the big congregations in Jacksonville. He has to go out to the more rural areas. He's, they kind of struggle to get by. But the Randolph parents insist that their two boys read all the time. Um, not just the Bible, but Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and American history and African history. And um, Asa Randolph, as A. Philip was was known at the first part of his life, decides to move to New York, escape the segregation of Jacksonville, goes to, to night classes at City College in New York. He becomes a soapbox orator during the Harlem Renaissance. And this fledgling labor union um, that's representing um, porters on the Pullman railcars and maids, almost all black, the the porters were male, the maids were female, asks him to try to to form a union for them. And it's, I mean, it's really the underdog political movement of all underdog political movements. On the one side are low-wage black American workers, and on the other side, on the other side is this company Pullman that had J.P. Morgan on its board. And, and Randolph fights to form this union, and he fails and fails and fails for years during the depression. They're thrown out of their headquarters in Harlem. But ultimately, he gets a lot of people to sign up for the union and the labor laws that Francis Perkins, FDR's labor secretary, and FDR put in place, make it possible for people to join unions and essentially force companies to negotiate with unions. And Randolph and the the Porters and Maids win huge raises. They win like a 30% reduction in hours, which just tells you how horrifically long their hours had been beforehand. And from this union, basically comes the civil rights movement. They schedule a march in Washington, which they call the March on Washington for 1941, to force the government to integrate wartime factories. And they force FDR to do it. And then they cancel the march. And actually, the 1963 March on Washington is the rescheduled 1941 March on Washington. I just think it's an amazing story. And I think it highlights the importance of labor. And I also think for anyone who's tempted to just give up on America, just think about how much longer odds A. Philip Randolph faced.
2: David, just jumping the line here, The um, A. Philip Randolph, there's a p- potentially apocryphal story of him with FDR um, in which um, uh, Randolph is arguing. I can't remember the specific thing he's arguing, but um, be, uh, he's arguing for um, some support for the union or for workers, and FDR says, okay, go out and convince me. Go, in other words, get the public to Um, believe what you want, and then that will allow me to act. That as a president, I can't just do this by fiat. I need a public groundswell. You have to go create it so that I can then go run in front of the parade. The reason I tell that long story is, do you see in Randolph's experience um, and in the union movement more broadly, and I'm thinking about the auto workers strike here, a a way to think about progress that is not presidency centered and Washington politics centered, but that is more outside in? And where's the, how effective is that in today's politics?
3: So I found no evidence reading through Randolph's papers and oral histories that that story is true. However, it's fundamentally true. So, which is to say, I think it's just too kind to FDR. FDR calls Randolph into the Oval Office to order him to cancel the march. Um, It's actually great. When Randolph walks in the Oval Office, FDR says, what class were you at Harvard? Um, Because Randolph was this just beautiful public speaker and he dressed very elegantly. And so FDR took this to mean that Randolph went to Harvard, which of course FDR did. Randolph only attended night classes at City College. And Randolph says, I didn't go to Harvard, Mr. President. And and the meeting kind of goes downhill from there. So FDR doesn't say, hey, I'm on your side, do this. FDR says, cancel this march. And, and, and I'll still try to help you and, and Randolph, understands the moment that the march, which will embarrass the United States um, as it's getting ready to enter World War II, will embarrass the United States in front of the world. He understands it's his only leverage. And it's exactly the outside in that you're talking about, John. It's just that Roosevelt wasn't really the conspirator that that story kind of tries to play on. Roosevelt says, cancel this march. He actually gets angry at Randolph in the Oval Office. I mean, just think about that. A. Philip Randolph is sitting in the Oval Office, defying an order from the just elected for the third time fdr and he says you integrate the factories and i'll cancel the march and it it is that outside pressure that you're talking about right it is and roosevelt does it. he understands that the, the political cost to him of this march is too great. And so it's exactly what you're saying. To me, the big way in which American politics and our society change is when you have a grassroots movement that is savvy about public opinion, that shapes public opinion, and then that elects people who are not hostile to it in government. It's not just top down or bottom up, you kind of need the two working together.
1: There's a kind of, I think, nostalgia here for exactly the era you were just talking about, where there was a kind of economic liberalism that was more separate, perhaps, from social liberalism. What kinds of moves would you suggest that Democrats make to try to have that same kind of broader coalition that you see in this earlier period where inequality is really diminishing? Um, Because it's a really different configuration from our current politics where, You know, especially the progressive wing of the Democratic uh, Party cares a great deal about social liberalism. And I think you see that in some ways as a kind of Achilles heel for the broader economic coalition that you're trying to imagine.
3: Yes. Look, we can't go back to the political structures of the economy we had in the middle of the 20th century. And we shouldn't. Um, I think it's important to say that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, not just economic inequality was falling, but racial inequality was falling as well, thanks in part to the efforts of A. Philip Randolph. But, but the racial inequality of those decades was horrific, and, and we don't want to go back for it. And I have no nostalgia, no nostalgia for that. I do think that it's important for the Democratic Party to be reflective about why it is struggling. And I think there are a set of stories that the Democratic Party has told itself that are basically a version of the only reason we lose is because the other side cheats through uh, voter uh, restrictions, or the only reason we lose is because the other side is ignorant uh, or hateful. Um, And again, as I said, the Republicans do engage in racism and race baiting at times. But it's a really bad mistake to say that everyone who doesn't support the Democratic Party is ignorant or hateful. And what I would ask the Democratic Party to reflect on is a long list of its policies are well to the left of where the American people are. Um, That includes immigration. Um, If you look at polling, um, uh, working class people, including Latino working class people, are much more concerned about border security than the Democratic Party is. Um, It included COVID shutdowns, you know, schools being closed. Closed forever and ever. Um, It it includes a long list of things in which basically the Democratic Party has adopted the policy preferences of relatively upscale people. And I just think it's important to reflect on the fact that polling shows this is alienating to working class people. Over the last five years, the Democrats have lost ground among Latino and Asian Americans. They've lost a couple percentage points among black Americans. This isn't simply a story in which if you don't accept the Democratic Party agenda, you're a bad person. And I think, I don't know the exact answer, but I think it has to be a version in which the Democrats try to be more respectful of the social and cultural moderation that most Americans feel. Most Americans are more patriotic than highly educated Democrats. They're more religious than highly educated Democrats. Um, it just, if the Democratic Party becomes a party of college campuses and Hollywood and elite media, which is super focused on social liberalism, I think it's going to be a minority party.
0: David Lanehart's New book is ours was the shining future the story of the American dream. David, congratulations. And, uh, may it, may it sell enough copies to, uh, single-handedly. Restore
1: redress. the American economy. Restore, restore <laughs> the American economy.
0: Thank you all for having me. It's great. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when, when you are. Kicking back after a hard week of union organizing, uh, I don't think either of you does any union organizing, but if you were kicking back after a hard week of union organizing to try to reduce inequality in America, Emily Bazelon, what would you be chattering about?
1: I am very taken with um, a podcast I didn't know about until really recently, which is the poetry podcast that the New Yorker does. Kevin Young is the host of it. And he interviews a poet every week who picks a poem from the New Yorker archives and then also reads a poem by the poet, um, him or herself. And I just, I'm someone who is so um, sort of intimidated by poetry. I never did what I should have done of taking a poetry class. And I mean, I just don't. Yeah. I think the last time I read poetry in a class, well, I guess Shakespeare in college, but really it was high school. And so I appreciate poems, but I never feel like I have the um, means of articulating exactly why and why I like something or why I don't. And Kevin Young is kind of a genius at that sort of analysis. And many of the people um, he interviews are also kind of geniuses. The one that I listened to recently, which I loved, was Toy Derricotte, a reading a poem by Tracy K. Smith, We Feel Now a Largeness Coming On. And then Derekot reads one of her own poems, which I thought was like actually just as wonderful. And they just had such a spirited conversation. So anyway, the poetry podcast from The New Yorker. And I would love recommendations from listeners of other poetry podcasts, because I'm sure there are other examples out there that are equally good.
0: John Dickerson, what is your chatter?
2: Um, actually I wasn't, this wasn't going to be my, um, uh, uh, my chatter at the moment, but it's just, um, it's so amazing with Judy Dench, um, uh, on the, um, the Graham Norton show, go just type in the Graham Norton show and Judy Dench. Um, and she does uh, a sonnet on the a Shakespearean sonnet on the spot. I won't tell you which one. Um, and it is I I mean, I was basically in tears watching it. It's, uh, it's amazing. So that is, uh, that's my poetry related, um, chatter for the moment. I also have some other kind of in the recommendation category, um, a, BBC radio show called cabin pressure. I'm an, I'm in a, I'm having a huge Roger alum moment, um, who is an actor who is in my, uh, favorite British procedural endeavor, uh, which just keeps rewarding and rewarding. Anyway, he plays, um, inspector Thursday, um, and, uh, detective inspector Thursday. And, um, oh, he's amazing. Anyway, this, uh, this comedy, um, radio play, um, with, um, benedict cumberbatch also in it is uh is is very funny and he's very funny in that uh i'm also going to log roll which is my interview with jason isbel um aired on our streaming network um you can go find it on youtube about um uh his songwriting craft and his life and he's an incredibly rich and deep uh person so i think it rewards and also he plays one of his new songs at the end which is great but my actual chatter is about um Uh, I learned that Ray Bradbury was so poor when he was growing up that when he went to his high school graduation ceremony, the suit he wore was his uncle's suit, which might not mean much to you, except that his uncle had been shot and murdered. And the suit he wore still had the bullet hole in it. Yeah. Wow. That is so punk rock. Um, yeah. So there you go. And at that, anyway, so, um, that just kind of blew me away. Um, also one of the just finally, we. Wait you're on second. chatter number five at this point. <laughs> no, no. I just want to shout out to our amazing fans, which we have just, we were probably all still in the glow of our fans, um, from Madison, but I also want to, um shout out to to, to um, Louisa Terrell who I um, ran into uh, down at the Miller Center in Charlottesville and had a great conversation with uh, and then Alex Maddie and Arthur who I ran into on the uh, on the streets of New York the most charming family oh my gosh um, and they're all they are all listen to the Gap fest and they are representative of all you wonderful people out there um, about whom we are so grateful or for whom we are so grateful.
0: My chatter is so pedestrian compared to your guys' chatter. And yet, and yet, I love the story by Sarah Zhang in The Atlantic. Everything I thought I knew about nasal congestion is wrong. Start with this. You really have two noses. It's an amazing story about your nose and about nasal congestion. And it disabused me of something that I had been confused about my whole life, which is when your nose is stuffed up, it's not because there's a lot of mucus in it. That is not what's causing it. Your nose is stepped up because your blood vessels, the, the nose and the interior of your nasal passages is like the erectile tissue in the penis. It's it's a spongy and it fills up with blood. The blood vessels dilate and that's what causes your nose to to congest. And, and nasal sprays work, not because they get rid of mucus, but because they constrict these blood vessels. But the most incredible fact is you're kind of your two sides of your nose work separately in a way like your eyes work separately. Uh, but on your right arm is a series of sensors, nerves that control what happens in your left nasal pa- passage. And if you put pressure on your right arm, as you might if you were lying on your right side, it will cause your left nasal passage to clear up. And if you put pressure on your left arm, inside your left arm, sort of in a crutch way, it will cause the right side of your nose to clear up. And it's just mesmerizing to think that I –
2: And if you wrap yourself like a burrito, you can breathe till Sunday. Yeah,
0: whatever, John. Thanks. (laughs) This is science. Hashtag science.
1: Peanut gallery.
0: Because science. (laughs) It I'm had, excited
1: for <laughs> yeah, this. I can I, uh, I
0: bookmark uh, that. And it's like when all this. this thing. I've all for all my whole life. Like when when I've been stuffed up, I've always like turned from one side to the other and thought, oh, it's the mucus is just flowing from the right side to the left side. And so now I can breathe in my right side because all the mucus has flown over. It's not it at all. It has nothing to do with it. It's that the that the signals in my left arm have signaled to my right nostril, clear up so this guy can breathe. It's it's bananas.
2: Is there a is there a an evolutionary uh, reason for that?
0: She she does posit that connection, an evolutionary reason for it. Um, she posits it's an age old survival reflex when we lie down on our right side, our left nostril is farther from the ground and less likely less obstructed, and therefore your your right side, so your right side would signals your left to clear up. But who knows? See if you can top that. Top that, listeners. Email us at gap at slate Something better than nasal passages and poetry uh, and whatever it is that John chattered about um, and Ray Bradbury that said that said, listeners, I believe that the Listener Chatter this week is inspired by John Dickerson, and it's from Albert Foxcon of Brooklyn New York.
4: Hello, Gabfest. This is Albert Foxconn from Brooklyn, New York. Forgive the log rolling, but I wanted to submit a chatter that you at the GabFest helped make possible. Back in 2020, John shared his reporting on Excited Delirium, the pseudoscientific defense used by police to explain the killings of Elijah McClain and so many other Black men who are forcibly medicated and assaulted in police custody. My colleagues and I went on to write a model bill that would ban police, coroners, and other officials from citing excited delirium as a cause of death. And I'm thrilled to say that just a couple weeks ago, Governor Newsom signed a bill based on our model, outlawing excited delirium in the state of California. This may be a bit esoteric, but I wanted to make sure that you knew the podcast played a part in making this milestone possible. And thank you as always for the amazing show. Wow, John, I, you talked about that so vividly
0: and so passionately on the show when when it happened. And I, how do you feel about that?
2: I mean, um, it's incredibly, I mean, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a total flood of emotions. Um, Sarah Koch and Chrissy Jones worked uh, on that story with me at 60 Minutes, um, and they really deserve... The big credit because they um and I also obviously think of um Elijah McClain and his mother. Um, it's just an awful, awful story. Um and but but Chrissy and Sarah held on to that story, fought for that story um against a lot of um uh I don't know. Anyway, they just held on to it and fought for it and fought for it. And um, you know, uh they're just all, all praise goes to them um and it's just um it's wonderful you know uh, as a political reporter you do a lot of stuff that uh, more or less doesn't mean anything to anybody um so it's nice to stumble your way towards doing something that might be meaningful so please send
0: us your chatter by emailing us at com. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth and researchers Julie Hugan. The music is by the Mighty Giants, Ben Richmond, senior director for podcast Ops, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of audio for Slate. Please send your conundrums to us at slate.com conundrums. And we really look forward to seeing all your amazing ideas so that we can talk about them on our conundrum show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We want to talk about a story that was in The Times this week um, about a Florida school district, uh, Orange County School District, which has passed the most uh, extensive restrictions on cell phone use in American public schools that I've heard of, which is they have barred students from using cell phones during the entire school day, not just in class, but during the entire time they are at school. They cannot use their cell phone uh this followed on broader florida legislation um which passed a law requiring all the school districts to impose rules on cell phone use throughout the throughout the state during class time but this orange county went even further and said ban it everywhere and so the times went to to uh, orange county in florida outside i think it's outside of orlando and uh what did they find emily
1: They found uh, kids paying more attention, seeming like maybe happier, and they found a lot of pissed off parents and some kids who felt like they needed to have their phones during the day. But I guess one of the things that, um, I mean, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think that phones in school are just a scourge, Um, and sometimes- uh, you know, in some schools, like the kids are just on their phones during class in this way. That's like there's no way they're paying attention. It's like as if you're having an attention suck, like in every individual hand um, all through the school day.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.